Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the AUKUS Amplified, the podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. This is one of seven podcasts highlighting a few of the many outstanding papers presented at the 30th annual meeting of the association. My name is Stefano Bini, and I'm on faculty at UCSF. I'm the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee at AUKUS. I'll be joined as co-host by Dr. Dustin Schuett from Naval Medical Center, San Diego. He's a member of our committee. Dr. Schuett, welcome, and let me just say thank you for your service. Hey, thank you very much, Dr. Bini. It's great to be here. Awesome. The title of the paper we're highlighting today was also the clinical research award paper for AUKUS this year is titled Extended Oral Antibiotics Prevent Periprosthetic Joint Infection in High-Risk Cases, 3,855 Patients with One-Year Follow-Up. It's an amazing paper. We're delighted to have Michael Kier and Dr. Michael Minigini joining us. Michael Kier is the lead author and Dr. Minigini is the senior author. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Dr. Schutt, I'll turn it over to you now to discuss the paper. Sure. Dr. Kerr, you're the lead author on the paper. Uh, can you please tell us what got you interested into this topic? And no, Dr. Managini previously published the 90-day outcomes. What led you to look at the one-year outcomes? So infection is, as we all know, is a dreaded complication and it accounts for a substantial percentage of post-operative complications. The reason why we looked at this study was because of, like you mentioned, a, a prior study that we had published examining extended antibiotics for seven days beyond the traditionally accepted 24 hours, and we found that it reduced 90-day infection rates in high-risk patients. 90 days is relatively short, although most infections do occur in that time period, we know that uh, the majority of infections occur within one year postoperatively. So we wanted to see if the results from this prior study that we published a couple of years ago, if the results were upheld at one year postoperatively. And we also expanded our sample size at the same time. So Dr. Kerry, you talked a little bit about the uh, design of the study and as far as increasing sample size, what was the main methods you used for coming up with how to do this study? So the protocol for the study began in 2015, and, and our initial paper was published in 2018. So our thoughts were to add another couple of years of data to this. In two to three years of data at our institution, added an additional 2,000 primary total joints. So it effectively doubled our sample size from the prior paper. And infection being a low event rate, this would be more meaningful to have bigger numbers, essentially. We basically looked at 4,000 consecutive primary joints over a nine-year period among four fellowship-trained surgeons, and it was a retrospective review, but all of the data was collected prospectively, which adds strength to our study here. All right, so Dr. Kerr talked about some of the mechanisms of how you designed the study. What are some of the key takeaways that you guys took away from your, uh, from your findings? I would say the key takeaways are that we found that with our protocol, giving extended oral antibiotics for seven days, we had a significant reduction in one-year PGI rates for high-risk patients. It was 0.89% for high-risk patients who are on extended antibiotics. And that's compared to 2.64% of high-risk patients who were not on extended antibiotics. So that's a 66% reduction in infection rate. 
The other interesting thing about this was our high-risk group that were on antibiotics actually had a lower infection rate than our low-risk group. And the low-risk group had an infection rate of 1.29%. Although there was no statistical difference, it was still pretty compelling data to show that we were able to reduce their infection rates quite significantly. And I would say probably the last thing I would comment on for one of the key takeaways is we determined a number needed to treat 57 patients with our protocol to prevent one PJI. Not only is that a low number of patients to treat, but this is also potentially very cost-effective because the antibiotics that we're given, namely cefadroxyl, only cost 10 cents per dose. That's $1.40 a week per patient times 57 patients, which amounts to roughly $80 to prevent one PJI. And as we all know, that's magnitudes lower than the cost of treating a single PGI, which can range from thirty dollars to $100,000. Oh, it's fascinating data. I don't think there's any insurance company that would fight you with $80 to prevent a PGI. Uh, what was your definition of high risk that you used for the study? So our protocol essentially used six variables for high risk. Uh, these were all derived from the literature, as well as Dr. Manigini's and the, our institution's experience. The risk factors that we identified were a BMI of 35 or greater. If a patient has diabetes, if they screen positive for their nasal colonization, whether that grew MRSA or MSSA, if they had chronic kidney disease, if they were an active smoker, or lastly, if they had any autoimmune disorders. Those include rheumatoid, lupus, et cetera. Excellent. And Dr. Menaghini, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here. So extended antibiotics, obviously not the current standard of care. Skip guidelines talk about doing no more than 24 hours, and there's a push in some instances to uh, cut that less. Based on this study and your findings with this research, do you think that should be the standard of care to do extended antibiotics? Yeah, I think the key here that people need to take home is we're talking about high-risk patients. So all of these guidelines is ironic. And even people, when they get up and talk about antibiotic prophylaxis, they're not taking into account these sick patients that we're dealing with. And that really was the study inception came about right before bundled payments were coming into play. We are at a tertiary medical facility where we don't have the luxury of what some people call cherry picking, which is turning away those who are high risk. So we take everybody. We take dialysis patients, HIV patients, all the immunosuppressed, morbidly obese. And if their arthritis is so bad, that they can barely walk and we know we have a treatment that will dramatically change and improve their quality of life, we're gonna give it to them. And what we had to do in that vein, especially in the bundled payment, was accept that risk and mitigate that risk. And we had to mitigate the risk of infection, which was of course the biggest and most important. And this helped us do that in a very practical way. And I can give, you know, if you want me to comment further, I can certainly comment about where that came from in terms of what our theory is about why a week or why the immediate post-operative period to cover them. I think it'd be a great idea. Why don't we go there? So I think one of the key philosophies that we embrace is this concept of during the first few days after a hip or knee replacement, that let's say that there's a small amount of bacteria because no operating room is perfect. No operating room can be totally sterile. The reason that some patients get infected and others don't is either the inoculation was too large on one end or their immune system could not fight it off in the other. So high-risk patients need a little bit of help, right? You can either boost their immune system 
where you can do these things that we've been talking about forever, but no one really does very well. They do okay, which is perioperative optimization. But many times you can't make an obese person skinny. You can make them less obese. You can't make a diabetic person less diabetic. You can make them optimized, but they're still going to be diabetic. So given that, do you just stop treating these patients? No. You assume that their immune system needs that boost during the first week after surgery when their immune system's knocked down and when these bacteria are in the milieu of this hemarthrosis, right? So you, in a knee, you know you get fluid. In a hip, you get fluid. That is a setup for PJI in high-risk patients. So all we're trying to do is protect them as they heal, as they seal the wound, as they seal the layers, and as their immune system begins to ramp back up to fight it off on its own. That was the theory behind it. Dr. Minigini, can you tell me a little bit about your perioperative protocols beyond the antibiotics? Because some of us want to replicate your work and make sure that we are also thinking about everything else that goes into preventing infection. Yeah, it's a great point, Stefano. And it goes part and parcel with treating high-risk patients. It's not just about the antibiotics. So what we have a comprehensive program where obviously from the preoperative standpoint, we have a special perioperative medical specialist dedicated to this who optimizes these patients preoperatively. Then at the time of surgery, obviously we do all the things that every surgeon does to minimize infection risk, be as efficient as possible, strict sterile technique, minimize traffic in the room. We don't use particularly UV light. As you can see how fair skinned I am. I'm Northern <laughs> Italian, Stefano. Do you know what UV light would do to me? It's not good. It's not pretty, right? It's not pretty. I'm not, not pretty. The, I'm not Sicilian. I'm Northern. Not good. So, but then in the immediate post-operative period, we do close on high-risk patients with a, mono, with a monofilament suture, no skin sealant, because I think that creates a little crust potentially in some patients, and we use an incisional wound vac. So that's what we, and we do that for a week. So they get a week of antibiotics, a week of incisional wound vac. Those two things combined really have been game changers for us. Got it. And, uh, and there's good data to support both of them. Do you wear hoods? I don't because I have also, in addition to being a pale Northern Italian, I have a C67 disc herniation that whenever I wear hoods causes severe neck pain. So right. <laughs> UV light and hoods cause me physical harm, Stefano. So I've avoided those. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrific. <laughs> and can we tell a little bit about your optimization protocol? So I presume in, hem in, uh, in diabetics, it's a hemoglobin A1C you're looking at. Are you looking at perioperative sugars? How do you handle a diabetic? That's a good point. And a lot of people that our colleagues talk at the podium, it's sort of like binary. It's a little bit more complicated. So we do an initial screening with hemoglobin A1C. If it's below seven, we're good to go. If it's in the sevens or low eights, then we talk to the patient. We look at, because as you know, fructosamine that measures their perioperative mm -hmm. glucose a bit closer to the time of surgery, we'll look at that. We will also have them track their daily blood glucose levels. So we'll have them check their sugars every single day, multiple times a day. They bring in a diary and then we check the uh, fructosamine because what's been shown to be much more impactful is not just a random hemoglobin A1C over three months, but that perioperative time right around the time of surgery. That's the critical point. So one could argue as we evolve in this, maybe, you know, years from now when we get even better, everybody will get a fructosamine two days before surgery and it better be spot on, even if their hemoglobin A1C is good. But as we evolve, we may get more sophisticated.
Yeah. And perioperative sugar is less than 200, if at all possible, right? That's the threshold we've been looking at. One other question I have with you, I suspect that many of us haven't, are not very familiar with the antibiotics. Can you tell us a little bit about, it sounds like the third generation self was born. Yeah. Yeah. Same sort of characteristics as cefazolin. It's a beneficial drug for this because it's only twice a day. Mm. So it's one of the unique, as opposed to things like, you know, cephalexin, that's typically three to four times a day can be upsetting the patient's stomach. This, this drug is actually very well tolerated. So it's twice a day dosing. People usually take it with food and Mike can comment in more detail on the uh, complication rate, but patients tolerated this very well. Yeah, I can comment a little bit on that too. So it's kind of interesting that we've moved away from cefadroxyl. I mean, we generally think about Keflex. Cefadroxyl is only two doses. Most people give Keflex four times a day. And interestingly, cefadroxyl is also much cheaper than Keflex. There's articles written by infectious disease specialists talking about why we've moved away from cefadroxyl to Keflex, and it's kind of puzzling actually to them as well, just from a cost-effectiveness standpoint, since the coverage is very similar. In terms of complications, there haven't been reported much complications with cefadroxyl. So the Mark Coventry Award paper that came out this year looking at extended antibiotics for three months after reimplantation. Some of their patients were on cefadroxyl. None of those patients had any complications with it. The patients that had complications were those that were on doxycycline or some of their other stronger antibiotics with stronger side effect profiles. But cefadroxyl seems relatively safe. So on that topic, because it happens to all of us, every time you do your checklist in the operating room, patient has an allergy to penicillin. That's historic 20 years ago. How do you handle that given the massive upside that you've seen with your antibiotic dosing and the very, very low cross-reactivity that if anyone exists at all with penicillin? What's your institutional approach to a history of penicillin if you're using a cephalexin-like drug? I think historically the cross-reactivity has been taught to be around 10%. But as there have been more studies over the last couple of decades, the cross-reactivity between cephalosporins and penicillin is less than 1%. It's less than a fraction of a percent. It's extremely low. And the safest place to test their allergy is in the operating room itself. So our protocol is if they have a documented penicillin allergy, you can test them in the operating room with cefazolin. If they are reacting to it, the anesthesiologist can always reverse it. I think the only times we'd probably err away from giving them a cephalosporin is if they have a documented cephalosporin allergy or if they report a severe anaphylactic reaction to a penicillin. Um, it may not be worth the risk. But even then, there are times where the anesthesiologists are on board to try it out in the operating room since they can quickly act on it. Do you have a secondary choice antibiotic if somebody does say either have a cephalosporin documented allergy or in an institution where they maybe don't have access to cefadroxyl? Any other uh, thoughts there? Do you know what it is? It's probably clindamycin, right? Or Vanco? What do you guys it's use? clindamycin oral for this protocol. It's either clindamycin or um, if they test positive for MRSA, they go with Bactrim. Back. Oh, really? If they get it in there, if they're positive in their nose for MRSA. So you give it orally perioperative as well? 
Yes. So it's that's the seven day. Cefadroxyl is the seven day they take home with the pills. If they leave the hospital, if they stay in the hospital two days, this is a common question. Yeah. If let's say they, most of our patients go home the next day. So they get 24 hours of IV and they're out the door with a script for cefadroxyl. If they stay two days, they actually have a gap because we don't give them IV antibiotics in the hospital. We're not going to get dinged. So they get IV, 24 hours, stop. They have a little gap, but they leave with their script for cefadroxyl. And the intraoperative drug is? Cefazolin. Cefazolin in the overwhelming majority of cases. Dr. Managhini, what is your uh, protocols as far as intraoperative as well as postoperative antibiotics for patients that are either allergic to cephalosporins or potentially have MRSA, as well as uh, if you could comment on what you do for patients in the hospital more than one day, if you continue the antibiotics in hospital before they go home? Yeah, that's a good question. It's probably the most common question we get about the protocol. So intraoperatively is no different than most people in terms of we do screen for nasal colonization. So if they have MSSA, or nothing, or they're negative with their screen, which is the majority of patients, they get cefazolin IV for 24 hours if they're in the hospital. If they're an outpatient, they go home with a prescription for cefadroxyl, the oral cefadroxyl pill, twice a day for seven days. If they stay overnight, again, that continues that 24 hours IV, and then they go home again with the prescription. The big question comes if they stay longer than one night. So if they stay two nights, which is rare nowadays, but some do, then they will actually have a break. They get the 24 hours IV so that we do not violate hospital regulations and get dinged. And then they leave with a prescription for cefadroxyl. And that's been embedded in this protocol from the very beginning. So you may say, well, oh, they get an 18, 24 hour break. That's true. It doesn't seem to have affected our data because I don't think it's long enough. And it, it also begs the question is, when do some of these people get inoculated or when does their immune system need the boost? It may be three, four, five, seven days out from the surgical procedure. Excellent. And then could you just touch on what you do as far as for patients with uh, cephalosporin allergies for postoperative antibiotics? Yeah, so patients with cephalosporin allergies, that has to be a true cephalosporin allergy. Anaphylaxis is cephalosporin. Those patients will give clindamycin unless they've tested positive for MRSA intranasally. And if those people have screened positive for MRSA, actually even if regardless of allergy, those people get Bactrim dosing BID for seven days. Thank you very much, Dr. Meneghini. And some final closing questions. What are your take-home messages that you want the uh, ACAS audience to get from this paper, as well as kind of the next steps in research uh, going down this pathway as we continue to work to eliminate as many PJIs as we can? Yeah, thanks for the question. And thanks again for being able to participate in the podcast. I think the take-home message on this research is that for those who are undertaking these high-risk patients, it's a very practical, inexpensive, relatively safe way to mitigate the risk of PJI. And I think for those who may have issue with it, because it, it certainly is not without its controversies, we've done our research even before we did the protocol on what the true contribution to antimicrobial resistance is. And we really believe wholeheartedly that the seven days of this very safe medication is also really still maintaining appropriate antibiotic stewardship. If you look at the data in terms of other contributions to antimicrobial resistance, this would be negligible, if any. And so we again, the summary is it's a safe, inexpensive, practical way to deal with this very high risk patients. And Mike Kerr alluded to it earlier in terms of the number to treat to save one PJI. That's really impressive data, whatever 57 it is. 
So that, I think that's really the take home message because anybody can do it anywhere, even if they wake up that day and have to treat a very high risk patient. That's awesome. And any future uh, pathways of research on this? Yeah. In fact, the, one of the great things is that they're an AUKUS FAIR grant award is on this topic, but in a multi-center randomized control trial. So kudos to those authors who did that. And I, I'm actually very proud that our work sort of stimulated the thought. Whether this turns out to be a good thing or not, I think the one positive that came out of it is it has spurred further research of very high quality. And I kudos to those people. And I hope we find out the right answer. Well, Dr. Kier, Dr. Manigini, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us out of your busy schedules. I know I learned a number of things, and I'd like to underline the fact that it's not just the fact that oral antibiotics in high-risk patients is uh, very beneficial, but also that high-risk patients need to be managed very well from the before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery. We heard about a very well-thought-through perioperative protocol with dedicated staff that manages patients and makes them, optimizes them for surgery and decreases, especially in diabetics, the risk factors wherever possible. We heard about a very uh, deliberate and diligent effort to mitigate infection at the time of surgery. Wound closures that are sealed for prolonged periods of time and not changed several times during a hospitalization. We learn about antibiotic stewardship and the use of a low cost and high benefit drug, cephadrexel, that I know for one, will go back to my institution and look into. I think this is a paper that has a number of beneficial data points for us to take home and learn from. And again, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks to you both as well. Appreciate it. With that, I'd like to close the podcast. Thank everyone for participating again and invite our audience to listen to our next podcast in this series from ACUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons from the 30th annual meeting. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.